This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we're looking at the life of Jesus through the four Gospels put together in one chronological flow. Ben, last week we looked at how Jesus prepared his disciples to take the Gospel to the world. And today we're going to look back into his own life, some of the highs and lows. You know, Jesus, it wasn't all easy street for him up until the crucifixion. He had highs and lows throughout his ministry, some ultimate highs and some extreme lows. And the episodes today take place really just over the period of hours, really. Not very long at all, just a, just a few short days. So let's, we're going to look in Matthew chapter 14, and we'll dip just into John, John 6, just a little bit at the end, I think. Matthew chapter 14, Jesus gets this news in verses 3 through 12. He gets this news that his good friend, his cousin, the man who baptized him, the man who prepared the way for him, John, we know as John the Baptist, was executed. He was arrested because he, John had made some statements against Herod for marrying Herodias, and he made statements about the wrong guy. And so he was arrested, and in the end, he was beheaded. It says John's disciples came and took the body, the headless body, I guess, and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. So Jesus receives the news from John the Baptist's very own followers, his disciples that he had. He receives the news that his cousin, his, I don't know if it was a mentor per se, but at least his, along the way, the person who baptized him, his colleague in ministry, had been executed. What do you think is happening in the life of Jesus? We know that he's God in the flesh, but he's God in the flesh. He's also very human. We've, we've seen at times when Jesus has deep emotions, he's filled with compassion. And there's a, there's, in Jesus' world, there's a lot spinning, a lot going on. And he hears this news. In fact, it says in verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What do you think is going on in Jesus' mind and his world at this time? Uh, well, first, uh, in looking at, at John, you know, one of the things that we oftentimes hear is don't bring politics into the pulpit. And we see John actually confronting, um, confronting uh, Herod and his, uh, his infidelity and, and what he's done, um, which then uh, causes his head to be lopped off. Uh, when we see when we see Jesus here, we see Jesus's heart. I mean, is aching. He he loved John, um, deeply deeply cared uh, for John, and uh, and so when I when I read that Jesus, you know, heard what happened and he withdrew uh, by boat privately uh, to a solitary place, he's seeking uh, some time away, uh, seeking to be. Um, I think seeking a lot of times when he withdrew, it was to withdraw to prayer, and so he's seeking to 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 pray to be an intimate in the intimate presence of of the Father. He's seeking comfort for his own wounded heart, um, in response to to John's death. 
it's an important lesson, really, I, I believe, for us to look at, here's the Son of God, and he needed some time. He needed to be alone. He needed rest. He needed to deal with his own grief. And those of us who are in ministry really can take a cue from that, that it's okay not to be on top of the game all the time. It's, it's all right to, to feel pain and sadness and grief when we have things that happen around us, loved ones we've lost or who are suffering, friends and neighbors who are going through hard times, or maybe in our own lives, something, something dramatic is happening. You know, just yesterday, one of the, one of the, the great guys who are part of our church, a uh, solid, solid Christian man leader, he, he stuck around after a meeting and he just said, I, I want you to know that my wife and I are praying for you. Mm-hmm. He said that to me because he said, I, I know what it's like to lose a dad. And my dad died a few months back. And he said, I, I want you to know that we're praying for you because when you go through something like that, it takes something out of you and there's continual grief to deal with amidst that. And I, you know, that meant the world to me for mm-hmm. him to, to look me in the eye, stick around after the meeting was all dismissed and everybody else was gone. And just to remind me that it's okay to rest a little bit, to grieve a lot, to to know that there are others praying for me. That, that meant a lot. It meant a lot to me to have somebody like that. It's, those things are helpful in ministry, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And as somebody who uh, has wrestled throughout ministry uh, in some ways to always kind of put on, uh, you know, put on the solid face, I guess, rather than even processing uh, my own grief at times uh, because there's always there's always the next thing uh, to do, uh, seemingly in, in ministry, um, where you're where you are. I mean, you're processing grief with others as they wrestle and struggle uh, with with uh, with loss, and in uh, a lot of times in, in my own life, there's been a lot of things that I have looked past uh, to the point. I mean, my my wife it it used to understandably drive her nuts because there were things that would come up in our own lives, uh, things that were grievous. And, uh, you know, I just kind of be like, it, it is what it is and, and seek to press on even minimizing my, my wife's own grief, um, as I was trying to, to bury, uh, the grief and the, the hurt that I, I personally, uh, felt and, uh, to the point where one time my wife actually got me this like little, uh, picture thing. And it, it actually said it is what it is. Uh, and I think that was a statement to me that, this is, this is not the right way to go about life. And, and I, I know, um, and I I know I've shared this with you before, Mark, but there was a a time in life where I was just really, uh, in some ways struggling and not even recognizing that I was struggling where there's the reality that, uh, grief and hardship and heartache, um, those things in, in my own life have been incredibly transformative and have deepened my relationship uh, with Christ to the point where uh, I, I began at, at some point in life to minimize uh, aspects of brokenness that I was wrestling with, whether it was with loss or, uh, you know, I had a, a dear family member who went through a divorce, um, which I was really grieved by. And I just kind of pushed past it. I'm like, well, this is just another aspect of life. God's going to use it. 
for at the end of the day uh, to refine my own heart and just kind of pressed on past it, uh, not allowing myself the time to to process uh, that grief. And I had a, a dear seminary prof that uh, in my doctoral program, this guy by the name of Steve Siemens, who's just um, just has a unique heart, uh, just a unique man in so many ways, and and I kind of opened up. Uh, to him at one point, and with how so much of my life was formed uh, through death or through tragedy, you know, ultimately my my dad's death um, several years later was in some ways the impetus in leading me uh, to Christ. And so much of my life had had been wrapped in in tra- in tragic circumstances, or like I said, in in death or some element of dysfunction that I just came to accept it as reality. It came to accept it as just, this is a piece of my relationship with Jesus and God deepening my relationship with him to where I stopped. I wouldn't allow myself to grieve. I just had this like suck it up, press on uh, mentality. And I remember Steve Siemens uh, telling me, he said, a, he's like, uh, it is what it is, is, is a, a tragic saying it minimizes the brokenness that has resulted from from the fall. And he said, Ben, he's like, sometimes it stinks. That wasn't exactly how he put it, but he said, sometimes it stinks and you need to learn to lament. And God has called us to lament in the presence of our heart, our heartache and our grief. And I think we see here with Jesus, I, th- I think we see him taking time to lament and to, to offer his prayer to the Father, to cry out to the Father in the midst of his own, his own grief. But the people wouldn't let him. Right. That's the, the interesting part of this, the highs and lows of this difficult day that he had. They really wouldn't let him do that. So verse 13 again said, when Jesus heard what had happened, the, the murder of John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. So Jesus gets in the boat and goes across the Sea of Galilee and to another place to kind of get away from the people. But again, the Sea of Galilee is not huge. You can see. So they probably are watching his boat and they're running along the shore. They're, they're following on foot. And the news is spreading from one town to the next, from the towns, plural. So they're coming from everywhere. When Jesus landed, he never got this time alone that he was seeking. When he landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Of course, this is the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000. And we're not going to go through all of that, I don't think, today. But it's in Matthew 14, 13 to 21, if you want to look it up. the interesting part of the story, uh, to me, it's not that the feeding of the 5,000 with a little bit of food is unimportant. That is, that's, a, that's miraculous. That's part of the high. But that he immediately turned his grief into compassion mm-hmm. and cared for people. I, I imagine he dealt with the grief later. He probably found some time later to pull away. We see him all the time going out early in the morning or going to a mountaintop or going by himself or just, just being with the Father, the Heavenly Father. But here he sees this crowd, these people who had followed him so desperate, they were probably clueless 
that Jesus had lost his cousin, mm-hmm. his his good friend, his the person who baptized him. And all they said is, we need help. And he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And and so sometimes this does feed into the narrative you were talking about in ministry where we are dealing with something, but in the next hour, somebody needs us. That's right. They want something. And it's not like there's a switch, at least for me, that I can turn on and off. But there are times when I think in ministry, whether you're a pastor or anybody who's serving, there may be a time to to maybe put aside some of that and work on dealing with it later. But right now in the immediate, yep. there is somebody in need. Yep. Uh, how do you do that? I I think uh, to, to keep our eyes... Uh, for me, you know, I oftentimes focus on Psalm 13. Psalm 13 begins as this, this psalm of lament from King David, where are you, O Lord? And then uh, as, as he progresses in the psalm, in this lament, he says, but I will trust in your unfailing love. And so David, things, things haven't been worked out for David by any means, but he knows of God's, the promise of God's covenantal love. God cannot defy his disposition, his character of love. Hmm. And so oftentimes when I'm wrestling with my own grief, it is, uh, it, it's, the, it's the essence of the lament, uh, but the confession, the reliance, the knowledge, the, the looking to the cross and knowing that God loves me. Here is the undeniable picture of God's love. Here's the undeniable picture of God's presence. And this is what I'm going to trust in. Because for so many people, their grief leads them to bitterness. Their grief leads them ultimately to turn in on themselves. And so rather than a softening heart, a heart of compassion uh, that emerges out of grief, it becomes a heart of bitterness. And oftentimes even a heart, uh, sadly, sometimes when that grief becomes a, a functional idol or a functional God that conditions the whole of life, sometimes for some folks, there can, there can become almost this sense of entitlement around their grief, that they're owed something by the world. Um, They're owed something by others to where that begins to condition their heart rather than, again, having that grief uh, condition their heart toward compassion, um, toward loving others. Yeah, so Jesus, he he does do exactly what you've said, and he, it's, it moves to compassion and he spends the day with them teaching and healing. And by the end of the day, they were hungry. And the scripture says there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So I don't know, 10,000, 15,000 people there. It doesn't matter because all they had was a sack lunch right. to feed them. And Jesus multiplies that and takes that sack lunch and, and feeds five, 10, 15,000, whatever it is with, with that. And so you can read that story. But in verse 22, Matthew 14, verse 22, when the day is done, it says immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go back where he'd come from, go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So the people were there, tens of thousands of people perhaps were there, and he's dismissing them. They had their bellies full. He'd healed them. He'd taught them. He'd ministered to them. He had compassion on them. He sent them home, and they left, and the disciples left. And I love verse 23 because it comes back to this thing we're talking about. 
after Jesus had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Mm -hmm. Later that night, he was there alone. So even though it got delayed, and even though he did one of the most miraculous things he's ever done in ministry, healing people all day long and teaching them all day long and feeding them with a boy's sack lunch, even though all of this was true, he still knew that he needed to work through his grief. Yep. And he, he goes to this mountaintop, a mountaintop experience. You know, we think of a mountaintop experience as lots of people and lots of noise and lots of activity and, and let me hear from God. His mountaintop experiences typically are himself and maybe just a few others with the transfiguration and so forth. So Jesus has this mountaintop experience, but it's, it says he was there alone. Of course, the Father was with him. The, the Holy Spirit was on him. But it was an, it's an important aspect that he did, though it got delayed by the demands of ministry, he knew he needed to process, to work through, to grieve the loss of his, his good friend and his cousin, right? Yeah, and that's where, you know, we look at, uh, there, there's such a, an enormously high burnout rate uh, among vocational pastors. Only, only 30%, somewhere around 30% of vocational ministers or, or, or folks who are in vocational ministry make it to retirement age in, in, in their calling. Um, and because so many uh, do, they, they burn out uh, for, for a multitude of reasons, but oftentimes it's because of a, a lack of vulnerability or a lack of processing grief um, or lack of, of reaching out uh, to another or even spending time uh, in prayer, uh, spending time in, in prayer and, and offering our, our heart ache uh, to the Father, seeking healing uh, in the presence of, of our grief. Because we're not going to run out of of people who have needs and no. things to be done, right? And that's always going to happen. No. And and just as we, again, as we encounter people who are in need, I think being humble enough to recognize that we have our own needs, that that sometimes the, the grief that we need to, to, to deal with and to process through, we're not robots. And yet a lot of times I, I think pastors take, take on this robotic mentality and there's a fear of vulnerability because in some ways I think some, sometimes we think that any sign of weakness is going to, to lead people to, to see Christ through our own weakness. Um, and it, we're going to, we, we fear that we're going to per- be perceived as having some lack of faith, which couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, our, our vulnerability is an expression of our dependence upon Christ, our dependence upon the community of faith. The same thing that we would call others into for healing and wholeness in their relationship uh, with Christ, oftentimes we don't engage in. And so I, I remember, remember fir- like the, the first second of, uh, of my doctoral studies when I was on campus for it, they had us in this class uh, with all the other doctoral students that were in our cohort, and they asked the question, how many friends do pastors generally have? The, the answer is zero. Gen- generally, pastors have zero what they would qualify as true friends who they can be open and vulnerable with. Uh, that's a problem. That's a massive problem. Yeah. Keeping things buried away behind the armor yeah. will not make us compassionate people, 
whole people. Yep. Certainly won't take us to the finish line, at least in a, in a holistic way. So Jesus stays up on the mountaintop. He prays. He's there by himself. He, he's dealing with his grief. Everybody's gone. The disciples are in the boat. They're heading across the, the, the Sea of Galilee, the, the super large lake. And a big storm comes up. Another one of these storms comes up. And this time Jesus is not in the boat sleeping, but this time he's up on the mountain praying. And so Jesus decides, you know, well, what better time to take a walk than when a storm is whipping up the waves? I'll just walk across the water. I'll just, I'll just beat the disciples there. I, I don't know what his, his, his goal was, you know, exactly when he's walking along there, probably to be seen and probably to do what's happening next, I guess. But we know the story. And again, we don't have time to go through the whole thing today. It's in Matthew 14, 22 to 36. And he walks in the water and, and all those things take place. But the, the piece I want to pull out is the very end of it almost, verse 33, when when he got back in the boat and the wind died down and the sea became calm, the, the piece that's in verse 33, then those who were in the boat, that's his disciples, worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Was this the moment that they got it? They'd seen him teaching and healing and casting out demons, or was it just another moment of an expression of joy where, where they fully acknowledged who he was, that he was the son, of, the son of God as he walked on the water and calmed the storm once again. They knew who he was. I want to hold this for a moment, this question. In contrast, flip to John chapter 6, because in John chapter 6 is also a telling of walking on the water, and after that there's some, some dialogue with people take take place in, in in Capernaum where they had landed on the, the boat and Jesus is talking about himself and being the the true flesh from God the true bread from heaven and the the upshot of that is in verse 66 John verse 66 from this time many of Jesus disciples turned back and no longer followed him what a day what a day of ups and downs to the point where you're, you're feeling grief I mean, as Jesus, feeling great grief, trying to get alone. Crowds, thousands of people are with you. You have compassion on them. You're healing all day long. You, you feed the thousands of people with a, a boy's sack lunch. He goes up to the mountain, spends the night in prayer. The next, early the next morning or right before it was dawn, he, he walks in the water, calms the sea, his disciples proclaim him to be the son of God. And throughout this following this next day, he has dialogue with them and the people don't like it. He said, you just want your bellies filled again with another boy's sack lunch. And they don't like it. And even though they had witnessed him healing and teaching and providing a miraculous meal at the, at the end of John six and verse 66, it says many of these followers stopped following Jesus. They turned back and said, no thanks. This is quite a day, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, um, the, the people wanted what they wanted from Jesus, and he's not giving them exactly what they want. And so ultimately they re- rebel against him um, from the standpoint that they 
they desert him uh, because they want more bread uh, for their bellies. And he's talking to them about how he's the bread of life. And uh, they, they're not down with that. Yeah, because sometimes we in ministry, like from the pastor's point of view, we want to do ministry if we have lots of people coming to church on Sunday, or leaders want to do ministry as long as several people are coming to a small group. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if I get rejected by a handful of people or they, they quit my small group, we get down and discouraged and we, we feel like, you know, we don't want to try this again. It hurts too much. But the realities of life are that there's going to be ups and downs. And we look at this, this day or two in the life of Jesus and have to recognize it, that even the Son of God had extreme highs and extreme lows some real ups and downs in his ministry. And from a worldly point of view, he wasn't always successful. Some of his disciples, the, the people who were already committed followers, said, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm not going to follow you anymore. I think it's a word to all of us in whatever aspect of ministry you're doing that there's not always success. And sometimes it's just a matter of saying yes to Jesus. Yeah, there was, a, there was a book that came out several years back called Irresistible. And it was the idea that, that if we would just kind of, you know, if we would do everything like Jesus would do, um, we ourselves would be ir- irresistible, that the message of Christ would be irresistible. And I, was, I, I read the book and constantly, while there were some really good pieces of the book, not to diminish it completely, but I'm like, the vast majority of people, while Christ was on earth, rejected him, turned away from him, deserted him, called for him to be crucified. And so we have this, uh, yeah, we have this, this picture sometimes of Jesus that just is devoid of reality. And so we even have these moments where Jesus feeds the 5,000. You know, he obviously has compassion for them, cares for them, is going to, to meet in some ways the, the needs that are existent, but they're not, he's not going to meet those things as they want, and so then they just abandon ship. So true. It's a good word today. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app, and click on the Life of Jesus link. This will take you to more elements in this year-long study. I should say, since it's a year-long study, if you're just now jumping in, just pick up from here. And when it's all said and done, you can go pick up the first 21 weeks. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week.